Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and president of the City Club's Board of Directors. And it's my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, the president and CEO of the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, Sandra Miller. From the rise of the Me Too movement to allegations against high-profile celebrities, public officials, priests, and powerful business executives, Sexual violence has never been more prominent in our national headlines. In the midst of these news stories, an unprecedented volume of local survivors of rape and sexual abuse have been speaking out, sharing their experiences, and asking for help. Last year, when Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was testifying of alleged sexual abuse, calls doubled to the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center a nonprofit organization which supports survivors of rape and sexual abuse. Survivors were struggling to reconcile the events of the day with their traumas of the past. The prevalence of these headlines and survivor stories leaves us wondering, is there any hope to reduce or even eradicate sexual violence from our world? Our speaker today, Sandra Miller, is the right person to ask. Sandra Miller was appointed president and CEO of the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center in September 2013 after serving more than four years as vice president and a member of the senior leadership team for the organization. The mission of the center is to support survivors of sexual violence, promote healing and prevention, and create social change in our community. Nearly 20,000 people benefit from its programs and services each year. During her tenure at the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, Ms. Miller has been a fierce advocate for survivors of sexual violence, giving voice to those who have been silenced. She has primarily led resource development, public relations, and public policy efforts. Among her successes, Ms. Miller led efforts to establish the first ever state funding stream for rape crisis programs in Ohio and expanded the center's geographic footprint beyond Cuyahoga County opening counseling offices in Lake and Geauga counties. Prior to joining the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, Ms. Miller served as the Chief Operating Officer for the YWCA of Cleveland and as the first full-time Executive Director for Cleveland's chapter of Flashes of Hope, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing powerful and uplifting photographs of children fighting cancer and other serious illnesses. She holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in journalism and public relations from Bowling Green State University and a Master's of Public Administration from Ashland University. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Ms. Sandra Miller.
Good afternoon. Thank you, Robin. Uh, thank you to the City Club for having me today. It is wonderful to see so many friends in the room. Uh, so Courtney. Courtney was in second grade the first time her neighbor started touching her. Looking back and when hindsight is 2020, it is easy for her to see that all the attention and the affection that the neighbor had shown her over the years was really a mask for his plan to sexually abuse her. It's what we call grooming a victim. But at the time the touching started, Courtney was eight years old and she did not understand that she was being groomed. No one had talked to her about private parts or good touches and bad touches and comprehensive sex education wasn't even a term back then. Courtney admits that at first it, it didn't really occur to her to tell anyone what was happening. Her, her perpetrator had told her, this is what people who love each other do. But her rapes continued uh, with regularity until she was 13. And over time, she began to understand that this was not supposed to happen. She felt ashamed and humiliated. She thought she would be punished if anyone found out. She was sure that there was something wrong with her, that she was the one who was broken. When Courtney was 17, she decided it was time to try to tell her mom. And she was met with a response that we see as so common for survivors, disbelief. By this time, Courtney had resorted to alcohol and drugs to numb her pain. She was self-harming. Her mom her, viewed her disclosure of sexual abuse, what she called her story, as just one more ploy to get attention. So Courtney buried it, and she decided she was never going to talk about it again. And now, as an adult, when Courtney's flashbacks kick in, she's flooded with memories of dozens, if not hundreds, of rapes at the hands of her neighbor. Courtney is married now, and she has a family. But it was when her kids started elementary school, and particularly when her oldest one started to get close to fourth grade, her flashbacks intensified. And as hard as she tried to forget about what happened, the flashbacks became not just unmanageable, but completely debilitating. She couldn't control when they would start, and she could not make them stop. Courtney called Cleveland Rape Crisis Center's hotline out of desperation. Our hotline is anonymous, so we didn't ask Courtney for her name. We didn't ask her for any identifying information. We didn't even ask her what happened to her. We simply said that we were sorry that she was hurt and that what happened to her was not her fault. Courtney did more crying than talking during that first call. And our advocate let Courtney know that she was there to listen, and she could say as much or as little as she wanted. But Courtney heard, we believe you. The first hotline call led to several more, and eventually Courtney decided to make an appointment with a trauma therapist. The therapist explained that Courtney has post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, as it's often called. It's the same condition that veterans, many veterans, experience when they return from combat. 
Over time, the therapist helped Courtney build a toolbox of, of coping skills to use when her flashbacks emerged. She helped Courtney work through some of the fears that she had about her inability to protect her children from harm. And the therapist even helped Courtney find a way to tell her husband what she had lived through so long ago. And in October of 2017, Courtney was one of the millions of women and some men and children who posted Me Too on her Facebook page. Me Too is considered a movement now, but for a decade before it went viral, it was a program started by an advocate and an activist in New York. Her name's Tarana Burke. Tarana directed after-school programs for middle school girls, and in all of her years of work, she had completely lost count of how many students had disclosed sexual abuse to her. There were times when every single girl in her after-school program had shared some form of unwanted sexual contact. She struggled to find the right way to respond to those disclosures, and she ultimately created a program called Me Too as a way of acknowledging the prevalence and the impact of sexual violence. But in October of 2017, it was about two weeks after the, the very first news story came out about Harvey Weinstein, actress Alyssa Milano tweeted her personal story and encouraged other survivors to share theirs with hashtag MeToo. And of course, we know what happened next. Me Too was a public reckoning with the prevalence of sexual violence. And for the first time, many people learned that their friend, cousin, former college roommate, colleague, husband's boss, niece, neighbor, or even their child had been a victim of sexual harassment or abuse. For some, the pure volume of people sharing their stories was astonishing. And from our perspective at the center, uh, we know there are millions more people who decided not to share their stories publicly. For me, Me Too was a window into what it is like to work at a rape crisis center. At our center and peer organizations around the world, Me Too prompted an overnight spike in demand for help. Um, by the end of November, it was about six weeks after Alyssa Milano's uh, initial post, there were days when our call volume was four times higher than our average. That volume continued for several months, and now we're about 18 months later, we, are, we still continue to answer more calls than ever before. To some extent, we are accustomed to a spike in calls in the aftermath of a highly publicized sexual assault case. Years ago, when the, you may remember, the Penn State case uh, headlined our news for weeks and even months. Even here in Cleveland, Cleveland Rape Crisis Center answered a record number of calls from male survivors. Uh, when the Imperial Avenue tra tragedy surfaced right here in Cleveland, more survivors reached out to us for help. And uh, as was said by Robin last year, when Dr. Christine Blasey Ford gave testimony in the US Supreme Court hearings, um, more, we, uh, when we answered, um, we exceeded our own record several times in a row for most calls that we answered in a day. During the Me Too peak in particular, nearly every single survivor who walked through our doors mentioned the impact that hearing so many public stories of sexual harassment and abuse had on them. And for some survivors, this was very empowering. Some found the courage to reach out to us for help for the very first time 
feeling inspired that if other people can find justice or find healing, then maybe they could too. We heard from other survivors who were really triggered by what they were seeing and hearing. It was a seemingly endless chain of news stories about sexual misconduct. And some of them reminded survivors of their own painful experiences. And yet there were others who were less impacted by the news and more impacted by the dialogue that they heard from the people in their life. Their coworkers bantering at lunch about how the Me Too movement had gone too far and how women were blowing their experiences out of proportion, not realizing that someone at their table was a survivor. And yet other survivors expressed frustration. While there were so many women speaking publicly, some felt left out of the national dialogue altogether. Where are the male survivors speaking out? Where are the people of color? Where are the lesbian, gay, and transgender survivors? And where are the women working minimum wage jobs who are subjected to repeated harassment and abuse? Is society ready to hear their stories? And will they have the same access to justice as the rich and the famous? A lot who talked with us privately thought not. Rape is the most underreported crime in our nation, with only one out of three instances reported to police. So that means that for every one rape that is reported, two more happen that never catch the attention of any formal authorities. It means that a sex offender in two out of three cases is never even questioned. It means he gets away with it. He's never held accountable, and he's empowered to continue hurting others. Why don't survivors come forward, many ask. Why wait so long, years or sometimes even decades, to tell what has happened? The answers are complicated and they are simple at the same time. We know each and every survivor has her or his own reasons, but we do see a pattern. And the number one reason that survivors tell us they didn't come forward is fear. Fear of retaliation by the perpetrator. Fear of losing control of who finds out and how quickly the news is going to spread. Fear and distrust of law enforcement, especially from our marginalized communities. And fear that no one will believe them. I want to scream from the mountaintops to these survivors. Of course we will believe you. Of course we will believe you. But deep down, I know they might be right. We don't have to look very far to find stories and headlines when survivors are not only not believed, they're judged, they're shamed, and sometimes even blamed for the crimes that are committed against them. In the recent well-publicized case against uh, US Olympic doctor Larry Nasser, the public learned just how many survivors had come forward, some to their parents, some to the municipal police, some to the campus police, only to not be believed or have their cases go nowhere. In the case against Bill Cosby, more than 50 survivors came forward and still many were not believed. And the vulgar names that were thrown at some of those survivors were heartbreaking. Reported in the recently re released docuseries, Surviving R. Kelly, Multiple allegations against the famed R&B singer, 
had come out year after year after year, only to have justice denied repeatedly for those who bravely shared their stories. And locally, less than a decade ago, Cleveland was sprung into the international spotlight when we learned that convicted rapist Anthony Soule had raped and murdered 11 women. Several survivors had reported assaults or attempted assaults at his hands, but for various reasons, one of them including they weren't believed, he was not held accountable, and he was left to harm even more women. In the last five years, journalists have uncovered hundreds of thousands of sexual assault evidence collection kits being stored by law enforcement agencies across the country and including here in Northeast Ohio. For various reasons, the evidence had never been submitted for testing. Chief among those reasons, survivors weren't always believed. The calls to our hotline follow a similar pattern. Earlier this year, a college student was drugged and sexually assaulted at a party. Her so-called friends videotaped a portion of the assault. And they told her later she must have known what she was getting into when she walked into the party. A child confided in a librarian. Her uncle had raped her. Her mom told her that she had led him on. A woman was brutally raped by her boyfriend, one more step in a pattern of domestic violence that she endured for years. Her family told her she couldn't be raped by a boyfriend. While each and every call that we answer on our hotline is unique, the pattern is the same. Survivors are scrutinized for not coming forward to report sooner, but those that do report immediately are often not believed anyway. And this is the double standard that survivors experience. So if there's one thing we can take away from the Me Too movement, it's that our systems, from medical institutions to criminal justice agencies to employers to campuses to K through 12 schools, to our social support networks like our parents, family, and friends have been wholly inadequate to respond to the needs of sexual assault survivors. What survivors have collectively learned over decades is that it is easier to keep quiet about their experiences than live through the agony of telling it over and over again, only to be met with disbelief or made to feel ashamed. When survivors are not believed, offenders are not held accountable, they're not questioned about their abusive behavior, they're not sent any messages from society that what they're doing is wrong, which essentially empowers them to escalate their behavior and continue harming more people. When offenders are not held accountable, we are all at an increased risk of harm, and our community is less safe. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Ohio, one in five women who live in Ohio and one in 71 men who live here will be raped in their lifetime. Yeah, that, that's worth repeating. One in five women and one in 71 men. We know that children are disproportionately impacted by sexual violence. And of the people who walk through our doors each day at Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, one third of them are kids. Research demonstrates that people of color are at a higher risk for sexual violence, as are those who live in poverty, those who have a physical or mental disability, and those who identify as lesbian, gay, and especially transgender. We know the impact that sexual violence has on survivors is tremendous. We know survivors are more likely to experience chronic physical illness, four times more likely to contemplate suicide, 
13 times more likely to abuse alcohol, and 26 times more likely to abuse drugs. A common statement that we hear from survivors, he didn't kill me, but I am dead on the inside. And while the psychological toll on survivors is enormous, uh, the CDC also reminds us there's a, an economic burden on survivors and the community at large. They estimate that for every rape victim, whether reported to authorities or not, there is a cost of $122,000 for medical and mental health treatment or criminal justice proceedings or lost work productivity. So it's for all of these reasons and so many more that the vision of Cleveland Rape Crisis Center is the complete eradication of sexual violence. Along with our board of directors, almost 80 professional staff, and more than 100 volunteers, we are working 24-7, 365 to support survivors, to promote healing and prevention, and to advocate for social change. Now, I recognize uh, by how quiet it is in the room <laughs> My remarks uh, may be painting a picture that suggests there is no hope for our vision to eradicate sexual violence. But I will share with you my absolute conviction that sexual violence is preventable. And I have hope in my heart that we can make our community safer. I find that hope every single day inside Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. So our organization was founded in 1974 by a group of volunteers. They didn't have a hashtag, they didn't have research, but they knew how many people were impacted by sexual violence. They started a rape crisis and support hotline and watched the phone start ringing and ringing. Um, you might be interested to know that Cleveland was one of the first 10 cities in the nation to start a rape crisis center. And today, we are home to one of the largest. Earlier this year, we celebrated the 45th anniversary of our very first call into that hotline. And we have added up that we have answered 125,000 calls since then. And of course, like everyone else, we're trying to keep up with the time, so our hotline is now accessible via phone. You can text, you can online chat. And we've added a second hotline that provides specialized response to survivors here in our local community who are trapped in commercial sex trafficking. Last year, more than 10,000 survivors of rape, sexual abuse, and sex trafficking accessed our services now in 18 locations in four counties across Northeast Ohio. More than 55,000 people benefited from our community education, our youth prevention, and our professional training programs. We're the only local agency that provides comprehensive sexual violence intervention and prevention services, and it is through survivors witnessing their strength and courage when they come forward, that I find hope that we are capable of turning the tides and preventing sexual violence. So, where do we even start? I believe that each of us, no matter where we sit, no matter what we do, no matter what our life experiences may have been, we each have a role to play in prevention. 
And I want to be clear that preventing sexual violence, I'm not talking about teaching women to carry mace to the parking lot or parking garage or to always travel with friends. I believe those are smart, basic safety practices. And you may, have, you may reduce the risk that you become a victim of crime when you practice them. But if we want to prevent sexual violence, we have to target our efforts on the people who are committing these crimes. We have to focus on stopping the perpetrators, and we have to reverse the rape culture that exists and prompts so many of us to turn a blind eye to abuse. So I offer five strategies for prevention. First, and uh, I just want to prepare you, this one may surprise you coming from the rape crisis lady, but please hear me out. <laughs> I believe we need to stop thinking about sex offenders as monsters who deserve to be cast away to an island. I can relate to anyone's urge to do that, I can. But I think we do society a disservice by thinking of sex offenders as them and not us. We have a tendency to think sex offenders are the creepy looking men in trench coats, probably lurking in a dark alley, probably living in their parents' basements. But in reality, sex offenders look and act just like us. We pass them at the grocery store. They sit behind us in the pew at church. They come to our family gatherings. They teach our kids. More often than not, sexual predators are charming and loving. They've worked hard to build trust with the people around them and earn a reputation of being a good guy. I believe offenders do more than groom their victims. I think they groom all the people around them into thinking that they're incapable of committing such a crime. In reality, the overwhelming majority of sex offenders are known to the victim, and they're usually trusted and loved not only by the victim, but by her or his family. Thinking of sex offenders simply as monsters makes it that much harder for us to believe survivors when they come forward to report that someone we know has committed this crime. Second, I believe comprehensive age-appropriate K through 12 sex education that includes specific content about consent, healthy relationships, and rape prevention is an absolute must for children and adolescents. I believe children need to be taught. <laughs> I believe children need to be taught at a very early age the correct names for their body parts, that their private parts are covered by their bathing suit, and that no one has the right to touch them there. Talking to young people about how their bodies work empowers them with the information they need to stay as safe as possible. Even toddlers can be taught that they have a right to say no to anyone touching or kissing them. We can respect a child's no even when great Aunt Susie is begging for a kiss. What we really need is for Aunt Susie to understand that our youngest children have a right to consent. And we need kids to learn that their choice and their voice should always be respected. Their body belongs to them. And third, we need bystanders, that's all of us, to act when we suspect something is wrong. We need parents and teachers and neighbors and library security guards and nurses and every single adult to resist the urge to mind our own business when our gut tells us that something is wrong. One of my favorite examples of the prevention and bystander intervention work that we've done comes from what some may think is an unlikely partner to a rape crisis center. 
a college fraternity. The fraternity established a code word to use if anyone sees anything that may be unsafe at a party. A girl passed out and some guys trying to carry her upstairs. In this fraternity, it only takes one member to start to spread the code word that Dr. Strong is in the house, and the brothers spring to action to check in with a girl, to maybe see if she needs a ride home, or maybe just to tell the guys their car's being towed outside. We all have a responsibility to intervene when someone's safety is at risk. Fourth, and I'm almost done, we need men and boys as allies and champions for gender equity and ending violence against women. This is not a women's issue. This is a human issue. And we need as many voices as possible to create the cultural change that is required. And we like to say at the Rape Crisis Center, we know that 90 plus percent of perpetrators of sexual violence are men. But 90 plus percent of the men in our lives would never tolerate that kind of behavior. From the derogatory comment made about a woman colleague to an offensive joke overheard in the locker room to a buddy who slings repulsive names at women who have reported sexual assault, we need you to speak up and to say that's not okay. We need men and women to reframe masculinity, especially for our sons, so that they too learn that being strong has less to do with physical ability and more to do with standing up for others. And lastly, we must, must, must. We must believe and listen to survivors when they come forward. We need medical and educational and criminal justice professionals to be specially trained in trauma-informed, victim-centered responses to sexual assault survivors. We need to create environments where more survivors feel comfortable coming forward and trusting these systems with their very intimate stories. We need more offenders to be questioned, to be charged, to be held accountable. We need to stop offenders the first time to keep them from harming others. Now, I acknowledge uh, that my five strategies may be the tip of an iceberg when it comes to eradicating sexual violence. Um, in reality, the execu execution of these is much more complicated, much more complicated than I can um, describe in my 28 and a half minutes on the City Club stage, um, and perhaps even in my lifetime. But I offer them as a place where each and every one of us can start. I believe that each of us in this room can agree that not one person more should experience rape or sexual abuse. And I believe that in order to create that reality for our future generations, we must start by listening to the survivors who are brave enough to tell their stories today. Thank you. Today, we're listening to a forum with Sandra Miller, president and CEO of the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. May we have the first question, please? Sandra, um, thank you for the work that you and your staff do. This must be emotionally very difficult for you and your staff. So I just commend you and thank you for your uh, perseverance at the work that you've been doing. So I want to talk a little bit about a parent. Um, you've now told us that we're supposed to start talking to our toddlers. Um, about touching, but as the kids get older, um, 
what is it that we as parents should be looking for, listening to, to recognize the signs that some abuse may be happening? And then once we hear things, what is it that we're supposed to do? Is the, do we go to the police immediately, or what are the steps that we're supposed to take? And then finally, are you taking your messages into parents so that we do know what and how to do and protect our children? Yeah, great, great question. So uh, um, I am a parent myself, um, and I do my best to walk the talk at home. I will tell you that um, I've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't just by talking with my own kids. And one of my earliest experiences was when my daughter was three and she was taking a bath and that's usually when I use the opportunity to talk about private parts. And I was trying to teach her that if somebody touches the parts covered by her bathing suit, she is supposed to say, stop. Um, I don't know where this came from, but we were practicing and my daughter, we're going through it role playing and she says, stop, credit card. <laughs> but that's, that's three. Um, so I guess I share that story to say this is not, it's not a one-time conversation that we have with kids at any age. I think it's a conversation that we have in as many ways as we can, as many times as we can at whatever age they are. We talk about using media as a great opportunity to open a conversation with young people. We all know there's enough on TV and in song lyrics and in the movies to just check in with kids and say, hey, what, what do you think about that? Watching Law & Order SUV, hey, what are you thinking? The other thing I'll say, um, Barbara, well, you asked you ask about recognizing the signs. You know, the signs of abuse are the signs of so many other social ills. So someone may be withdrawing from school they may, you know, may be noticing they don't want to go to such and such family thing. The signs are plentiful, and they're the same signs that happen with so many other things. It's so hard to know. Um, but what I will say, what, what I do myself and what I share with others is create an environment with your kids where they feel like if something does happen, they can tell you. And um, my dad was the worst offender. He, my dad said exactly what I tell people not to say. My dad said, if anyone ever hurts you, I'm going to fill in the blank, whatever. Which essentially says to a child, if someone ever hurts you, don't come and tell me. Um, so I think the message with kids is, if something ever happens, I just want you to know, I'm a safe person. You can come and tell me what happened. And then you can't overreact when they do. So to your point, what, what do you do, Barbara? I think you start by listening, and you start by saying the most simple things. I'm sorry this happened to you. How does it make you feel? It wasn't your fault. You didn't deserve what happened to you. How can I help you? What do we need to do to make you feel safe? And at some point, you know, in engaging with formal authorities or police may be the right thing to do, but the first thing we need to do is pay attention to the needs of the child. Um, Sandra, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful work you do. Um, I retired from teaching about eight years ago, and I'm on the State Board of Education now. And so my question has to do with the wonderful work that you were doing in schools. And I don't know if you're still doing it, but I know that, um, um, who was it that came to talk to my boys? Is Alex. It? Alex, yes. Alex came and actually talked to my boys about appropriate behavior. And to, to me, that's one of the best preventions in the world is to uh, talk to students in the school. So can you talk about, do you still do that? Do you still have the staff to do that work? And if you do, please tell about the great work you're doing in schools. 
Yes, and Alex Leslie is here, and uh, he leads a team, a very small but mighty team of prevention specialists. And uh, when I mentioned that we had reached 55,000 people with some of our programming, that includes a lot of the work that we do inside classrooms. So um, many times teachers will invite us in during their health classes, or I mean, sometimes it's social studies, sometimes they draw a uh, correlation to the math curriculum, but they find a way to bring in Cleveland Rape Crisis Center to talk about myths and facts about sexual violence. Um, we talk with young people about the difference between consent, um, which is healthy and legal, and coercion, which might be legal, but is certainly not healthy, and assault, which is not healthy or legal, and help, help young people sort of understand the spectrum of behaviors, healthy versus versus not healthy. We also do prevention programming. A lot of what we do is co-ed, as we think the messages, you know, by and large, a lot of the messages are the same, whether you're a boy or a girl. But we also do some uh, Girls Inc. groups where girls have a safe space to talk about some of these things, and some boys-only programming um, called a Men of Strength Club that we've done uh, in partnership with the Boys and Girls Club and with the City Rec Department. Have there been any cases at the center that would indicate that the current political climate regarding the undocumented has stopped people from coming forward? Hmm. Great question. Um, I think we do everything we can at Cleveland Rape Crisis Center to be a safe place for anyone to come forward. Um, we go out of our way to tell a community of um, particularly immigrants or undocumented undocumented immigrants that we are a safe place. It is incredibly hard for them to come forward. And while we don't really see an impact on the surface, I am sure that it's happening on a level that we can't see and hear and feel. What would, your, what would the best approach be for someone who comes forward but doesn't want to go to the authority and just wants to keep it within the family? I would respect their wishes. I think what needs to happen first and foremost is we take care of the survivor's emotional needs. There are a lot of very good reasons why a survivor would not want to report. And not reporting today doesn't mean they'll never report, but I think we wanna put as much power and control and give the survivor as many choices as possible to help them recover from the trauma. What we find with a lot of survivors who come to us, they're not interested in talking with law enforcement right away. Um, but once they find some emotional stability, they find the courage to then go forward and report. Hi, how are you? Hi. And again, thank you for the work that you do. But I was wondering, is there anything planned or has been planned regarding how the media, you know, their narrative, how to educate the media on the way they report? Um, I'm even thinking about even going into colleges to talk to the students so as, you know, when they graduate, they have the right narrative. Just to try to control the narrative, what are your thoughts? I think that's a fantastic idea. I think we have local journalists here in Cleveland that have been phenomenal on this issue. And, um, and I believe that they already are in journalism schools uh, teaching students. Um, I think one of the things that needs to happen is make sure we're telling the entire story. Sometimes the narrative gets written um, and it's what 
you know, what makes a news headline, it's more focused, stories often tend to be more focused on the rich and the powerful, um, you know, the, the wealthy, you know, the victims who meet a certain profile. And I think what we need to always advocate in terms of journalism in our media is making sure that the entire spectrum of sexual violence stories is co covered. People of color, lesbian, gay, transgender survivors are impacted by this. Undocumented immigrants are impacted. And I think Me Too was focused on some of our celebrities, and that's what makes everybody want to click and read more. Um, but we have to understand that these issues are, are impacting everyone who lives in our community. Thank you for the work and um, your leadership within the community and the region and the country on these issues. I'm wondering, it's such difficult work and takes a toll on the providers. Can you tell us about the staff care efforts and um, supports that are offered to maintain their resilience in the face of these traumatic stories? Yeah, thank you. I am so glad you gave me an opportunity to say out loud that I work with the most incredible human beings that one can ever find. Um, <laughs> We, um, we do what we can to take care of staff at the Rape Crisis Center we, and volunteers, from board members to volunteers answering the hotline, to the prevention staff that's in the school, to the therapists that are hearing stories, to the people who are raising money for us to operate our organization. All of us are exposed to traumatic stories on a regular basis. We try to create a culture that encourages self-care and not just like, oh, we're, we're gonna go get a massage today, but builds in practices uh, over a long period of time that helps people take care of themselves. We try to walk the walk. We offer what's, I think, considered a, a, a very above average um, benefit in, in terms of paid time off. So our team, we are encouraged to take vacation, take a mental health day, use your sick time when you need it. We have a sabbatical policy so that employees um, can enjoy a life outside of working with trauma. Thank you. I just, oh. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, I just want to say thank you also for your work. Um, I work with older adults and um, also have some older family members uh, who are survivors and witnesses. And I'm just wondering, have you seen any increase in uh, the number of adults over 60, 70 that call you for assistance? And then the second question is, um, how or what suggestions would you have for someone like me and my team who work with older adults who have those issues and they there's some um, they're a little hesitant about coming forward because there's this generational thing where you know now a lot of younger people are you know me too and mm -hmm. and I don't see that as much with the older adults so. Great question. We have seen an increase in the number of older adults coming forward, particularly for counseling. Um, I heard um, one survivor who said, I'm, I'm retired and I finally have the space in my life to focus on this and this is my last chance to work on it um, before I die, so kudos to him. Um, I do think it is harder for older Americans to come forward, and um, I mean, there's generational differences, as you described, and how people think and respond. 
uh, to sexual violence. I think as a loved one of someone who may have a story to tell, I think we, we have to be careful to not force it or not think somebody, somebody, like they owe us their story of what happened. They don't owe it to us. So when they're ready, um, you can be there to be a safe and supportive person. You can let them know whatever they need to talk about, you're there. But it has to be on their terms. Sandra, hi. This is a little off the prevention theme, but there's an enormous backlog of um, rape uh, kits that have gone untested over many years. There's been an initiative that you've been um, a leader in to work through that backlog. Where are we at today, and what's the future look like? Good, good question. So it's been about roughly five years ago when our Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office really led the charge, galvanized the resources to start the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative Task Force. Uh, Cleveland Rape Crisis Center is one of the partners on that task force, along with the Cleveland Division of Police and, and others. Um, Attorney General at the time, Attorney General Mike DeWine, also put some significant resources into uh, the crime lab and making sure that they could all be tested. It's my understanding that just about 15,000 sexual assault kits from across Ohio has been tested by the crime lab. Here in Cuyahoga County, um, the prosecutor's office started with cases 1993. It must have been 2013 when it started. Um, so they started with cases 1993 going forward because there's a 20-year statute of limitations on those cases. And they have a team of several dozen investigators and prosecutors who are now looking at the results of that evidence and looking into the cases. They have some incredible um, statistics on number of offenders that have been convicted of crimes. There's been a lot learned about how many serial offenders um, there have been in our community, and also um, a lot learned about offenders. I think we've, we've thought of offenders as either hurting people you love and, and trust or hurting strangers. And I think what we are starting to see from some of the data of this is that offenders hurt people that they love and they hurt strangers, and they hurt people they love and they hurt strangers, which maybe um, can change the way that we think about investigating crimes. Um, there's also, um, because we started with 1993 and worked forward, there are still um, thousands of, of kits that, are, that still have not been sent for testing. And in, in most of those cases, we think um, the statute of limitations has probably expired, and there's probably not an opportunity to prosecute those cases. Um, we're, we are working on a grant with the Cleveland Police Department to try to find the resources to test that. It's the position of Cleveland Rape Crisis Center that victims deserve to have information about their cases, even if the opportunity at justice may not be there. Good afternoon. Thank you for sharing the five recommendations. I certainly believe that they can help reframe the conversation and narrative around this. The one that sticks with me the most is the first one, to stop thinking that they're monsters. So my question is, has date rape gone up or down in light of the Me Too movement and all of the conversation, not only in this community, but in the country around rape? Yeah. So I think it's, knowing that rape is the most underreported crime in the nation, it is really hard for anyone to know whether incidents are going up or down or staying flat. I think generally, I do not believe that the incidents are happening anymore today. I believe our society is just more prepared to talk about those. It's more comfortable coming forward. I think date rape, acquaintance rape has happened um, for a very, very long time. It just, 
um, existed under a veil of secrecy for a while. Thank you. Um, my question is, I hear you talk about like the calls are increasing, um, a lot of stuff is being done for prevention, but is there any legislation coming down the pipe that we can be aware of or know to vote for? Because I know that resources on the tail end for survivors, um, unfortunately, is not where we need it in regards to mental health or even um, shelters for survivors. So is there any legislation that you're aware of that we can kind of advocate for? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, um, at every level of government right now. Um, at the federal level, our uh, Congress is considering the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, and, and my understanding is the House passed it this week, and thank you, Congressman Joyce, for your support on that. <laughs> Um, on the state level, um, our legislature uh, is considering the budget for the next two years, and we are asking them to increase the funding in the Ohio Rape Crisis Fund. Um, right now, there is not a rape crisis program in every county in Ohio. In fact, about 10 years ago, it was less than a third of the counties in Ohio had a rape crisis program, and many of us have been working um, to build that infrastructure around the state. Um, and Ohio for a very long time was the only state in the union to not dedicate state funding to a rape crisis program. So it's very important for us. And I think on the county and the city levels, regardless of if it's Cleveland or you live in the suburbs or you live in Ashtabula, every local government is trying to figure out how they do better to respond to sexual assault. Most often, those efforts are geared towards a criminal justice response, um, which makes sense. Your police are employed by the, the city, and that's important, and our police need the training and the resources um, to be able to do the best jobs possible. But I would, um, open, I would ask local governments, open up the conversation that we are not just going to police our way out of this issue. We need the mental health supports. Um, we need rape crisis programs. Um, we need addiction recovery facilities. We need hospitals who are all equipped to respond appropriately to survivors. Uh, Sandra, question, a follow-up question on what, what Janet asked you about if a victim uh, does not want to report to the authorities. Um, my understanding is, isn't there a duty to report things that you have knowledge of for most professions that deal with kids, with the concern being that you're probably not that offender's only victim? Um, so what is the duty to report? And I guess I just don't, you know, I think that most things should be reported if you do have the information. Yeah, great question, and I appreciate the opportunity to clarify on that. Yes, many professions, particularly those who work with children and social workers, teachers, et cetera, have a duty, according to our state legislature or our state laws, um, to report any suspicions of child abuse, either to police or the Department of Children and Family Services. Now, sometimes we get a call and someone says, uh, a child di just disclosed to me oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what do I do? And I, I remind people, take a deep breath first. Um, the number one priority needs to be making sure that child is safe and has the support that they need. And making a report is important and it should be done pretty quickly. It doesn't have to be the first thing that's done. So um, again, it's t reminding the child 
thank you for sharing with me. What happened to you is not your fault. You didn't deserve this. I'm going to try to help keep you safe. Good uh, afternoon at this point. Uh, thank you very much for all the work that you do uh, for CRCC. My, my question is a two-part question. Um, last month, you had a press release that mentioned uh, the new location in Shaker Square. And you specifically talked about the outreach to the African-American community. And understanding this is a very complex issue in and of itself. Um, and then you add in race, and it gets super complex. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the roots of my two questions. The first one is, how will uh, the Rape Crisis Center uh, respond to the needs of uh, black women and uh, black victims, especially with your new location um, on the east side where you mentioned the proximity mm -hmm. uh, to the African-American community? And the second part is especially in this era of the Me Too movement. Um, for, for black men, we want to support uh, survivors. Um, we also understand that there have been instances of false accusations that have been motivated by racial animus. And so what advice or counsel could you give to those who want to support survivors but also want to fight against uh, false accusations? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big question. We should have started there. <laughs> So yes, it is true. We announced plans earlier this year. Thanks to funding from the Ohio Attorney General's Office, we are opening a new office location this summer at Shaker Square. And it was done with the intention of trying to make our services more accessible to the African-American neighborhoods on the east side. We looked at data of where uh, reports were, be where um, assaults were being reported to the Cleveland Police Department, and we looked at the data of where our clients uh, were lived, and we could see a discrepancy between the highest reports happening in some of the east side neighborhoods, but that was not where the highest proportion of our clients were coming from. Uh, we had the funding to open one office. We chose Shaker Square because, um, as one person told us in our, our needs assessment, Shaker Square doesn't belong to anybody. It belongs to all of us. Um, so we're hoping that it will be accessible for many of the east side communities. Um, and we also know that rape crisis programs, including Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, has they have primarily over the last 50 years been driven by white women. And we know that um, it has not, it is not, has not um, been easy for black women to come forward and feel safe um, at, at rape crisis programs. And we are doing a lot of work internally um, to promote cultural humility and figure out what we need to do to make ourselves um, as safe and accessible as possible. We've got a lot of outreach workers who are trying to build relationships um, on the ground with our African American. Uh, politicians, influencers, neighbors, uh, black clubs, etc. The second part of your question about false ac ac allegations, I have kind of a two-part response to that. Um, we have to acknowledge in our history that false rape allegations have been used to harm African-American men. And um, unfortunate doesn't even begin to describe <laughs> that scenario. I think we have to be um, honest about that. I also think um, often our general public thinks that false rape allegations happen at a much higher rate than they really do. And the FBI has done research on this, and they have said that uh, rape allegations are false in about 2 to 8% of all cases. Our general public thinks it's more like 80% of all cases. And so I think we have to find some balance there. Rape um, is not falsely reported any more often than identity 
theft, burglary, or any other type of crime. How did it? <laughs> Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum with Sandra Miller, President and CEO of the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. We thank all of you for being here today, and that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Miller. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.